We are surrounded by incredibly strong people. Their journeys, like us all, are full of resilience, persistence, inner strength and an ability to gain perspective to make the best of what is thrown our way. This is People Are Amazing, the podcast. In his early 20s, Dennis found himself fleeing the 2017 political war that broke out in his country of birth, Kenya. He crossed the border into Tanzania to seek safety, and before he could say his proper goodbyes to his family as they all parted ways, he found himself alone and hopeless in Turkey, competing with those left destitute from wars in neighbouring countries. People Are Amazing, the podcast speaks to those who have walked the paths of hopelessness, adversity, and trauma that many like myself will never experience. For a good jolt of gratefulness, perspective, and a wonderful reminder to never give up because each and every one of our lives matter. This is Dennis Kahoria's story. Hello. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. Hey, so firstly, did you manage to sign your contract? It's all done and I'm so excited. Woohoo! That is the best. Yeah. Congratulations. And when do yeah, you start? Yes. I start next Tuesday. Yep. So next Tuesday, it's going to be my fast day. I've already gotten a haircut. It's time for me to make some really good impression. <laughs> uh, there's a new accountant in the office. So, you know, awesome. how are they going to know it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it looks good. Um, hey, look, thank you so much for catching up. Let's get into it. Thank you for being a guest on my podcast. People are amazing, all about resilience, dream, inner strength, and extreme or otherwise, you are definitely someone who has demonstrated or has had such an incredible life journey that uh, embodies resilience and inner strength. So Dennis, tell me all about you. Where did you grow up? What you're all about? Give me some context around your upbringing and childhood. Well, let's go 7,500 miles into East Africa. place called Kenya that's where I was born and um, I grew up in Nairobi so Nairobi is the capital of Kenya um, growing up I grew up in a very conventional family my sister brother mom and dad and my older brother of course and you know growing up in, in Nairobi at the time the country was it was good it was good obviously in comparison to what I've seen over the years, now I've got something to compare with because obviously I'm overseas. But, you know, as a child, we had, you know, I had a very normal upbringing um, in Kenya. Went to school. I did my primary, did my high school. And then after high school, I think that's when things changed. But other than that, you know, everything was everything was decent. Everything was relatively okay. We obviously did come from a, I didn't come from a very wealthy family. So as you would imagine, and as I'm sure you would appreciate, um, you know, life had its ups and downs, but it, it was okay. And your dad was a figure in the political scene. Yeah. So, so my dad, my dad, um, my dad is a lecturer. Um, and at the time, I think, He'd always been, he was always very influential, a very, he was always networking. And he was a political figure in the year 2007, 2008. So he was running uh, for a seat in Embakasi. Uh, that's a constituency in Kenya. And um, he, he obviously, be, because I am my father's son, it, it, 
so it turned out that he wanted me to participate in the campaign process. So we were going out there, reaching out to women, kids, I was kissing babies and all of that. He was doing all of that, you know, chatting with people. Uh, and he had a really strong vision uh, for what he wanted to do to the community. And so I shared in his vision and, you know, we won the campaign, campaign trails the whole of 2007. It was rigorous. Um, it was, you know, full on, uh, you know, and so, so yeah, my dad had really sunk his teeth deep into politics uh, back in the year 2007. And um, as, as a young man, I was obviously uh, soliciting all the young people's votes. Um, and I've just, I've just been, I just, <laughs> The funny thing is I wasn't even eligible to vote because at the time I think I was 17 or something like that. Uh, but then I had this kind of innate ability to bring people together. I was as confident as my father. So I was just getting out there and getting people to, um, and so I was just really kind of like hand in hand with my dad out campaigning. Did you have any brothers or sisters that also uh, championed your dad? Um, they, they, they were not as, as, as um, you know, they are not as, as uh, enthusiastic or as outgoing as I am. My sister was young at the time. Um, uh, it was, I think she, she was, I don't know, seven years or something like that. So she was really young. My brother was very sort of like stayed away from politics. So he was eligible to vote and we obviously knew we could count on his vote. But in terms of like getting out there and getting to talk about uh, elections and politics, he just didn't want any part of that. I was the one who was like, yes, my dad is going to do this. My dad is going to do that. Come and vote. We're going to do this. Like I was, I was the organizer, events, everything. I was just out there. Uh, ensuring that my dad was safe, giving him information as to where where he was supposed to go next, sort of like his PA in in, in some ways. And so, what happened during that time? So helping. So obviously, everything everything went everything broke loose the year two thousand and seven um, after the election. And bear and I'm just going to include someone else into the picture. My uncle who was uh, aligned with a very uh, dangerous group. Well, we didn't know it until then. And so what happened after the, the post-election violence is obviously there was, there was just tribal tensions uh, all over the country. Uh, I'm sure everybody knows about the 2007, 2008 post-election violence that happened in Kenya. And we got caught in the crossroad. And so we had to flee. Um, and I recall as, as that happened, I was, I was, um, we were in Kasarani and we could see a mob of guys with all sorts of weaponries. We're, we're talking like, uh, you know, daggers, swords, bangers. We're talking about like all sorts of like, you know, like, that baseball bat and it has like um, uh, nails on the head. Like we, people were just, you know, shouting and, and yelling and, and they were just coming towards our direction. And I remember uh, my dad telling me, uh, he just grabbed my hand and he told me, look, we've got to bounce right now. We've got to run. And, and that's when, I think that was the last time I saw my home. Um, 
so that 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 was it. Uh, my brother had already, my brother, my dad had already put my my brother in another bus, and my brother was gone. So it was me and my dad, and we had to run. Uh, my mom had already gone with my brother and my sister, and so it was me and dad who were left behind uh, because we obviously looking into the elections. We we were expecting the results, and so when the results were announced, my dad did not win, and so. Um, my uncle got killed into the in 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 that crossroad, and and my dad and I had to flee, and, and it was really tough. So we got into this van, and um, we got into this Peugeot. It was a Peugeot five hundred five, and we had to flee from our house, and we had to go all the way to Tanzania, and so that's that's how I left Kenya. So the things things were. The political temperatures were just off the roof, and obviously because my dad was so involved, uh, there 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 are people who wanted to hurt him and myself. Obviously, if they wanted my dad, they wanted me as well. So we had to flee, and um, how did that, you that's how out? I. How did you find out your sorry. uncle passed away? Oh well, my dad got a call, and and yeah, we, he was brutally beaten and that was that was really rough to 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 hear the news um you know we didn't get a chance to to we, we claim his body you didn't get a chance to it was just rough there's there's nothing we could do it, it was just mob justice and hard mentality um and obviously my dad's involvement he obviously uh, you know created tension between him and and um, uh, some affiliates of, of other groups. And so we, we had to abscond from the country. We, we had to flee. We were going to, as we were going to Tanzania, uh, I remember the driver was like, look, he told my dad, look, you've, you've, got, to, you've got to get out of the car. They, they, and Dennis has to go into the boot of the car. And so they opened the trunk I got into the trunk. Uh, my dad had to leave me, and he told me that he would contact me in in Tanzania, and um, and I've never seen him since then. That was the last I spoke to my dad face to face. So he just gave me a hug, told me to be strong, and boom. The next time I heard from him, he was in the states, um, and obviously I, I made means of of fending for myself and and sort of finding my way around the world. Um, I knew that going back home would be dangerous. Um, and so we, we never went back. And, um, you know, the, the truck was stopped. They looked around. The guy the guy that was driving was from the, the other tribe. So it was a mix, you know, a mixture of tribal tension and political tension. So, right, there, there's, 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 there's that, there's that, there's that, that's what was happening. And I could be so, ask you something, yeah. just yeah, in terms sure. of the politics and the rivalry and the, the I guess, the different um, people who wanted to move into power. And you're going to have to excuse my lack of understanding of the politics in Kenya. No, it's it's all good. I think I think um, what happened was uh, there's yeah it, they it wasn't so much about the views. Um, people really didn't care about their policies or what they were standing for. I think that sort of politics would be applicable here where people are labor and liberal. It was about 
it was more tribal. It was um, that the other tribe felt like the election had been rigged. Sorry. They felt like the election had been rigged. And so they were embittered by that. And they were taking out their, uh, their frustration on the other tribe. Um, notwithstanding the fact that the politicians did not aid to quell the tensions that were existing at the time. So sort of, you know, we had, you know, the, the whole human rights court case in Hague that was held at, I think, um, the year 2010 or something like that. So obviously the politicians as well had a part to play in, in instigating or in perpetuating uh, propaganda that the other tribe had stolen the election. And so it was very tribal and there was just animosity between the two tribes. And those were the two main, the biggest tribes. So there was those Kikuyu people and there's the Lua people who are, who are you know, rivals. And, um, and so people are being evacuated from their houses. So, you know, it, it was just, it was just really, really, tensions like it was yeah it was full-on uh, hatred between the two tribes so that that's in terms of politics that's what happened it's it's incredible when you hear about stories like this and knowing that the genocide happened yeah only yeah. 10 years ago yeah. and it's you know yeah. still hurting each other not biting together and making sure that it's 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 you guys against the rest of the world it's it's still tribes and it's still against each other. So that's really sad to hear. You, you'd be surprised as to when we don't have good leaders, the impact that that has or their words, can they, they just don't take responsibility for the, for the impacts of their words on the community or on, on, on masses, right? So they just, you know, instigate and, and, flare up crowds not knowing the implications of what they were doing and the results were were just chaos so much tragedy so you crossing the border and and parting ways with your dad in tanzania how long were you in tanzania and how did you get around a year i i did everything in tanzania god polished shoes uh sold water um i i did everything and anything to make money guided tourists i i stayed in moshi for a while and i suppose at the time i didn't even understand um who an asylum seeker was i didn't even consider myself an asylum seeker actually i think i stayed in tanzania illegally because i didn't even care about the visa Uh, it was until i left the country that I realized, oh, oh, my bad. I've been staying here illegally for a whole year. Um, luckily, at the time, I already had my passport. I had everything sorted out. But I, I think I, I know I stayed in Tanzania illegally for a while uh, because I was just so young. Um, and you know, the, the other thing is, I was just like my dad had raised me well, so he'd given me some some skills of how to survive outside outside you know yeah so so i knew how to communicate i knew how to um get by i knew how to i had some work ethic at the time um i'd already finished high school so i knew some abcds on how to survive and i did all all sorts of jobs i paused shoes like i can really really shine someone's shoes and i think that's what got me by yeah um I, I did climb Mount Kilimanjaro, guiding tourists in Mount Kilimanjaro. Um, obviously, a lot of tourists uh, came from 
from Western countries and I was I was able to convert in English and, and that translation got me by like translating for people. A, give me some net, networks and B, I was able to, you know, find a way of getting out of the country. I made enough to be like, all right, I'm going to get out of here because, because I also had like, uh, kind of like I, I knew I, I just wanted more and I knew I couldn't go back home. So, so that gave me a, an opportunity to sort of reflect on where else I could go. And so I found myself um, in Turkey. I found myself Why Turkey? in Turkey. Uh, that's where my visa could take me at the time. And as I've told you, like I, I was just so clueless on what who an asylum seeker was or, you know, all of that. I was just so naive on so many things, on so many levels. Um, so I just looked um, into Google. I looked at where my passport could take me, and where I could make some money. I wanted to be somewhere in Europe. I knew applying for a visa into the EU it would, it would have been close to um, impossible because of, first of all, you've got to show like a, a really fat bank account. Um, if the, the, it was just I, I couldn't afford, afford the, the air ticket, like the selection criteria of getting into those really advanced countries was, was just too difficult. So Taki had, um, Taki, um, actually, I just got a week um, visa. So I say, say this, they told me, look, you're going to go to Turkey for one week and then you're going to go back to your home country. And so when I got to Turkey, fast things fast, um, I just had to find a way of, of staying there. And that was uh, that was through visa extension. So I extended my visa. And then, yeah, so I, I lived in Turkey for a while. And I think I stayed in Turkey for at least three, four years. And again, you were just doing odd jobs, weren't you? Just trying to do anything you can to get some Oh, oh yeah. Like, like the thing was, there was no way of going back home. So that, that bridge was already, you know, I'd already crossed that bridge. The tension at home and, and my dad was, so influential they had already killed my grandma at the time they killed my uncle they burned our house um there was no going back home so you know it was just me myself and the world and I had to tackle the world um with strength and confidence and I just had to had to really just find my way around how you know there was no option there was no alternative do you know what I mean it's like you either keep going forward um or you just get stuck and getting stuck. Fight or meant, fight. You know, no, yeah, I will fight. There is yeah. there is no option of anything else other than just keep moving forward. Yeah. Turkey was absolutely, absolutely difficult. A because of the language barrier. I couldn't speak Turkish. I only know like how to say hi, how to order something from from the shop and how to ask for a direction, right? So but you gotta know how to I, say I it too, right? <laughs> no, actually, I, I never learned how to say Turkey. Like, I learned they've got a word for a black guy. I think that's Zenji or something like that. Big is Buyug. And then English uh, Biliorum. So, like, if you want to, you ask someone, can you speak English? Is it English Biliorum? And then they tell you. And then yeah. you sort of like, someone tells you, yeah, yeah, I can speak English. And, and it, it was. The survival trick in Turkey for me was find people who can speak English, let them guide you around, let them give you a job. 
um, and with the Turkish who could speak English. It was, and, and at the time as well, it was so difficult because, you know, there was war in Syria, there was war in the southern border of, of Turkey. And so, like, it was all refugees and everyone who was trying to eke a living, all squeezed in Istanbul. And I remember there was also, like, some political, uh, um, like, I was at Gezi Park when there was that whole riot. Uh, against the president of Edwin. So, like, I lived through that historical sort of uh, moment as well. I was there. Yeah. I was there when that happened. Staying in Turkey, it had its ups and downs. But again, like, it, you had no choice. Like, I remember there was one time I was selling watches and all the odd jobs, like, you're competing against all the Syrians, you're competing against all the, um, all, the gypsies. All the, all the, the gypsies, the Kurdish people, you're just there kind of hassling there. This is a time I actually, I, I nearly, I tried to, I tried to learn how to fish because I could see like the guys were selling fish. The guys were like, you know, fishing or making some money. But then mm-hmm. as soon as I got a fish, I realized I'm hungry myself. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you yes. can't really tell the fish if you're starving. <laughs> you just kind of eat the fish, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's incredible because even that in itself, you need to be so strong within yourself to keep forging forward. You know, with that level of competition, when you're out there selling menial things and doing menial tasks, getting paid nothing for it, it would be so tough. I mean, you had some really dark times in Turkey. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember in in my, and to be honest, like, I think that one of the, you know, being vulnerable, even, even though, you know, even though I was so vulnerable, I actually wanted to work. I wanted to fend for myself. So it's not like, you know, it's not like I, I was sitting there expecting, you know, for aid or whatever. I just wanted a chance in life. Do you know what I mean? Like I wanted an opportunity such that I could eke for myself, such that I could get away from harm and I could equally contribute to the world. That was the attitude, right? So it's not like I was just sitting there expecting uh, for handouts and, 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 and food vouchers or anything like that. I just wanted that opportunity. And to get that opportunity, it was just so difficult. And I remember, like, I remember this one time I had to, this is, this is, this is going to sound a bit silly, but um, I remember I was in the streets of Turkey, yeah, and, <laughs> and I remember I, I did this once, and I remember that day I actually made, like, 300 bucks. Um, it's, it's a bit dark, but I was just so broke. I was staying this uh, stadium that was being constructed in Besiktas and they, they, they had like those this underground place where I could I was sleeping because I was homeless I didn't have a place to stay so I was staying there and it was really safe I would crawl in at night um, after hustling all day in Istanbul you know going to Istaklar street trying to find work maybe some guy dashed you some food and I remember that morning I just woke up and and I asked someone look can you point me out to where I can get a job and you, I, you just I just had to be I think you know one of one of the things that have helped me advance in life to this point today is because I'm, I'm so confident in approaching people and I think that's where I learned it I had to I use I had to ask for help so I would approach I would approach someone and and the guy was like you know what go to that building go to that building he was pointing me out to where I he saw signs, right? And then I just, I just kind of asked him, bro, do you mind if you, like, can you, 
can you buy me lunch? Like, can you help me out? I'm a bit starving here. And the guy pulled out 300 bucks and he just like, and it was US dollars. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He just dashed me $300. And I think that was the fastest $300 I, I ever made in my life. That, 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 to that guy, whatever he is, thank you. And I remember, I remember I was able to, to get an apartment in that building that he pointed out. They were actually looking for uh, an administrator. And, and so I got the job. And so life turned out to be a bit smooth thereafter. And it was just through some good Samaritan sheer luck um, mm-hmm. that I had to ask that guy that question that morning. And, and you know, I was just so I was smelly. I was really filthy. And I remember, I remember when I went to, to that company, I, so I worked, I worked in one of the best studios in Istanbul. It's called Baba Gym. Google that studio. It's like world class. Like top artists in the world go to Baba Gym to get their music recorded. And I was fortunate to work there as an administrator. And I learned how to uh, play the piano. I learned how to uh, do sound engineering. I learned a lot from that gig. But I remember when, when I walked in into the doors of Baba Gym, the guy who opened the door. His name was his name was Peter. Uh, Peter Sniper, really good friend of mine to date. And I just told him my situation. I told him, look, I can't go back home. I'm broke ass. I'm homeless. I don't know what to do. And I just need a job and just whatever. I'll clean the floor, whatever. And he asked me about my education. I told him where I was. And yeah, so, so he gave me a job. And after that, I managed to save some money, paid for my schooling, did my degree. And then that's now how I landed in Australia. Amazing. It's um yes, yeah, yeah. such a such a couple of different life journeys and, and hurdles that you yeah. jump through. And just from someone's goodness of their own heart and humanity and that's it. Your life turned around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You've got you've got those um people out there. But I think what I learned from that journey was just it just it's synonymous to what is written in the Bible. You knock and you shall and you shall receive, kind of thing. Like you, you've kind of you know you've kind of asked. You've got to ask the world to give you a chance. You just can't sit there and expect the world to give you a chance. You've got to ask and go for it as well. So you, you've got to follow up with actions. Uh, sitting in a sedentary position and expecting that things will turn out to be okay is a bit of a misguided approach towards life. If, if you want to move forward is, look, things are not going so well. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do something about it. You know, I think one of the things that I have tried to skew away from is, is self-pity. And, and that sort of like, that sort of approach in life is just, it's dangerous. And I've been there and it's so melancholic. It's so melancholic and it's just, it reels you to a really dark place. And if you're in a dark place, then your life choices are just so uncalculated, so demoralizing. Uh, you, just, you, just, you just make so much bad choices when you're not thinking straight, when you've lost hope. And when you don't respect that life has more to offer, I suppose that's having that sort of attitude that, look, I know where I am right now. 
I understand my predicament, my position, but I also know that life has, you know, life has more to offer than what I'm going through. And I think understanding that sort of awakened me to be somewhat, uh, you know, optimistic about tomorrow. And it made me work hard. It made me look for opportunities. It made me to bubble out of that sort of uh, the precarious state. Because trust me, I remember one time I was in Turkey and I was um, I was hustling for a job and it was just so hard because every time I was knocking at people's doors, I was knocking at people's doors. A, they just looked at me and they're like, "Girl, which are you kidding? Like they've got that attitude. There is no way on earth we're giving you a job." Yeah. And but I was just so relentless. I remember one time I woke up and I got into the ferry as uh, moving from the. Europe side of Istanbul. So Europe is divided. Uh, Istanbul is divided into two. So there's that side that is obviously connects and lingers with with Europe, and then there is the other side that connects with Asia. And so when I was moving from Europe to Asia, it's it's like a forty minutes ferry ferry ride. And I was there, and and um, I sort of got out of the ferry, and I and I had sandals, and I put my sandals on the dock, and I put my feet out. And I, I was touching the water. And at that point, I was, you know, I was just contemplating, look, drowning is not the best way to die, but there, this could be a way out. Right? And that, that thought crossed my mind. Yeah. And, you know, uh, life, when life has pushed you to be in such a hapless position where you're, you, you, you've reached that point where, you know, you just want an easy way out. It was dangerous. It, it was so, it was, it was the darkest point of my life. And I remember I was like the captain, the captain of the, of the ferry could see me from above and I didn't know he was looking at me and I just kept playing with the water, but I was just so close to toss myself into the sea. And then I, I put on, I, I don't know. I, th- I think at that point is, is when I realized that, you know, it's a, it's 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 at times like those that you ought to gather your inner strength, right? You just have to find a way of conversing all the strengths and to marshal all the 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 the, the strengths that you've got and and push on with life. Because I had to I had to imagine that there there are other people who are going through us than what I was going through. Like surely I like and I look at myself, like, like I kind of appreciated myself at that point, at that moment, uh, I think my attitude uh, radically changed. And I remember I remember when I got back and I, that's when I my eyes sort of interlocked with the captain's eyes. I remember he just saluted me and I think he understood. And I think that from that moment onwards, I realized that, that that would have been a really stupid mistake to make. And, um, and so, yeah, I've never looked back since then. I promised myself I was going to find a way uh, to leave, put back what had happened and just to move forward with life. And so that's what I've done. It's a really special moment there where things changed for you from darkness to yeah. hopeful that it is going to get better. And I often think about life yes. as a bit of a law of average because there's only so many bad things that can happen to you consecutively before you're working one step closer to a good thing that could change your life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Your life has changed because you're now living in Brisbane. 
Now, how did yeah, um, in Brisbane. how did Australia come about from Turkey? Um, I applied for tourists, so I came here as a tourist, and then that's when I I now that's when I realized there was the option of applying for asylum, um, and I realized that Australia had um, opportunities, and then I applied for asylum, and and the government was kind enough to to grant me the opportunity to stay here. And how long have so you been here now? It's been close to seven years now. So Australia has really, I came here as a kid, to be honest. I came here when I was, what, I was either 24, something like that. Um, yeah, I came here when I was 24, I'm 31 now. So, yeah, it's been some time in Australia. Um, obviously, you know, I had to go through the detention process. I had to go through ups and downs of sort of, uh, approbating why I should be granted asylum. It's also a really rigorous process, uh, but I went through all of that and and I'm grateful. Like, as again, it's, it's for me, it was always like, what's the alternative? Go back home. That's not, that's not an alternative that, that I can take. So it's about going through the process. Yeah, so far, I'm, I'm just grateful that I'm safe. I'm, all, I'm away from Hams, I'm from Hamsway, and I'm taking the opportunities that I can. But most importantly, I, I suppose my life as it is right now is just sort of giving back to this community as well because I do have a safe haven. I do I'm, I'm all right? Like I'm all right. Like I'm I'm doing I'm doing all I can to give back to the community, and that's 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 what I'm doing currently in Australia. So, so you do a lot of work with the Red Cross and you share your story out with people as well who have gone through yeah, a very yeah. similar journey as yourself to get to Australia. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, look, I, I feel like with that story, it just made me a very sort of strong-minded person. It made me learn a lot about adversity and how to overcome adversity and how to appreciate life. You know, it kind of tightens you out um it's it's you know if you, you just if you're pushed to the corner it just gets to a point where you kind of want to push back if, if you're constantly you know you kind of want to push back life and so those difficult difficulties that I experienced the loss that I experienced the not seeing my family kind of I know one day I'm going to see them but I'm also grateful for that experience. It has made me the man that I am today. It's made me a very strong individual in terms of my mental aptitude. The way I look at life is absolutely different. And, and, it, and I attribute that to the experience. So I don't wish that for anyone, but I know it has really, really created a character that I'm hoping that the community here is going to be proud of because now I go out to schools, I go out to communities, I have done so many events. Um, I speak to people about those challenges. I speak to people about depression. I did I did a Blue Knot event, I think it was 2019 at Communify. I talked about you know the mental stress that I went through during that period and being a kid and not understanding what's going on. Like now at least I'm living in a society where 
people can discuss about these things mm-hmm. more openly and and mm-hmm. it has enabled me to understand oh right so that's what was going on in my life during at that period this is why i was making these decisions so now now i can reflect back and i'm sort of appreciative of of that journey but most importantly for me is just like give back to the community every opportunity i find it's like I want to give back to the community. It's 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 the more I give because I'm I'm so grateful for what life has given me. Like there are so many who didn't make it out of the 2007-2000 post-election ballots. There are so many who did not make make it out from the Rohingya violence that erupted in in Asia. There are so many who have not made who didn't make it out out of Lebanon. There's so many who are still stuck in Syria and they're going through that balance. And here you are whinging about whatever and you're in Australia. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Be first world problems. For what you receive. Yeah, first world problems. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, like be grateful that you you can be able to to go out there. There is support groups. There's, support, there's a support network in Australia. Be grateful for that and then apply yourself in, to help others and that's that's what pushes me it's just that knowing that you know if I put my services out there I'm making someone else uh, enlightened I mean living someone else's life that's what pushes me that's 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 my drive is just knowing all right whilst I've gone through this experience this is what I can equally give back this that experience does not mean or does not uh, assign me to or to this abased level of nothingness. It, it does not put me there. Going through that experience does not mean that you are this kind of a person. No. Going through that experience, you could look at it two ways. You, you either use that experience to elevate the lives of others and, and to ensure that things like that don't happen to other people, or you're really into that and, and it's, it's, a, it's a dark road. And I choose I choose the former, not the latter. I choose I choose to move forward, and and to make the the world a better place. I think that's that's where I, my source of strength is that that profound knowledge, that you can use that experience and you can refuse to be um, ascribed to that or assigned to that sort of tag that oh you you're a refugee you're worthless you're meaningless you, you go back to you know there's a lot of nonsense and rubbish that 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 I hear out there and there's some sort of stigma related to people who are um, who are asylum seekers. I just I just I just don't have time for that. I just have time to to make to leave good food, footprints in my life. That's all I have time for. Like I just want to do good and achieve as much as I can because time is so ephemeral, you know, and so you just kind of want to contribute as much as much as you can. You're... sorry i i reeled into some philosophical deep thought there <laughs> no i feel everything that you say and i think you know your your experience and your wisdom speaks yeah. right it speaks so loudly and you are really 100 years old in your 31 year old life you have so much oh my god so much to offer oh my god. Look, really i already got i i've got a little gray hair here <laughs> So, no. <laughs> so I, I know, I know, I know. Very, pretty soon I'm going to be going bald. So yeah, that's coming. That's coming so to it. What about your family now? Where your dad's in America? Where's your mom, your brother, and my your dad, sister? She's in the states as well. So my mom and mom and dad and and my sister. 
uh, they're in the States. Uh, my, fr- my, my brother is in Uganda. Um, so nobody's in Kenya. Uh, we are all out of harm's way, which is what was most important. Uh, my brother sort of found his way around. And I, being the second born, just, just yeah, just a very bizarre sort of journey. And I think I had always been that guy who was just the, the black sheep in the family, sort of like going through my own direction. Um, I suppose, I suppose what people, like, I suppose I always had aspirations as well when growing up and, um, and I just didn't, like after I went through that experience, I was just thinking that, you know what, uh, this experience might blow out the candle that was inside of my heart like this experience was trying so hard to dash out every hope and dream that i had of eking having a good life having a good family and i it was just a fight for me i couldn't allow my dreams to be dashed out just because of that experience it was a tough one but i was like you know what i'm tough as well and and I've got a fight to, to, to make a life for myself. And I think that's, 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 what I, that's, what, that's what I was doing. I didn't realize what I was doing, but it was just that survival. I just wanted life to offer me better. You know what I mean? Like, I just didn't want to... Um, You're not ready to give up yet. ...sit there. Yeah, I just wasn't ready to give up yet and just, like, throw in the towel. I mean, yeah. it, it was so hard. And as a kid, you don't know what you're doing. It's when you look back and you and it's when you realize, oh, but this is what this is what was really driving me. And I was just so clueless as well, you know, um, as to what was happening in my life. Like I think again, I think that through networking, for example, I, I met a group of people in Istanbul who sort of kept me afloat with my mental struggle, like my mental struggles as, as soon as after I got the job. Uh, like for example that guy I told you Peter is he would sit down with me would go out for lunch and he would just like sort of sort of reinvigorate that that hope that I uh, initially had and so it was a bit of a trying time but at the same time healing time and sort of recognizing what what I wanted to do with my life it helps when you when you surround yourself with good people that can provide you with a bit of direction because, yeah, during that period of time, it just yeah. seemed like you were, you know, obviously lost, not knowing where home is, how to get around, how to make yeah. your next meal would come. It's good to have good people around you. Now, my final yeah. question for you, Dennis, is I know you've been spending a lot of time working and giving back to the community and sharing your story and inspiring other people to make sure that they don't give up and yeah. keep going as well. What is... Yeah. What's the, the one piece of advice you often offer people who are in the same position or is trying to find the courage and the hope inside them to continue on? Um, I just tell them that, you know, not, not to give up and not to, I, I give them, I try to give people the tools of not reeling into a self-deprecatory state, right? Reeling into self-pity is what I try to um, advise them that they matter as well, that their lives matter, that regardless of uh, the experiences they've gone through, um, it, it, it doesn't mean that that's the end of life. Uh, give them hope, 
I suppose that they've got to respect themselves enough to want to, they are worth it. That's, that's the message I try to give up. It, I deserve it. Like you also deserve a good life. And, and, um, and I think that's, that's, that's what, uh, what I've gone through that I, I had to tell myself that I deserved uh, to have a good house, to, to have, uh, to be safe. You know, first of all, these are inalienable human rights, safety, health, and people's welfare. These are human, these are basic human rights. And so uh, to, to those who are struggling, um, I tell them to look forward and to have hope that tomorrow is going to, to be a, a brighter day, not to allow themselves to, um, to reel into depression and to get help as well. Get help, affiliate yourself with organizations that support, uh, that provide assistance. I think it's worth noting that not everyone has the ability to, to sort of have a very strong mental capacity to just sort of drag yourself out of that state sometimes you need assistance from from your friends from your family from people around you go to community churches uh, look out for organizations such as red cross look out for organizations that provide free mental um, uh, health care go out there get that support um, participate in the community the the, the one thing that and, and, and that's something you can do in Australia. I think the one thing that really pulls people into um, into that darkness is is just staying at home and, and just like kind of like isolating yourself. Don't be isolated. Yeah. Get out there. Yeah. Find people. If you isolate, you're only inviting really gloomy thoughts. But if you start networking with people and, and, and you know, putting yourself out there bits by bit, People give you hope. You understand that the world is still moving, and you're part of it. And that's 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 what that's what really re-energizes me. It's just knowing that I'm also a living organism, and I'm a, I'm part of this world. And that's how I've managed to 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 just keep moving forward. And, and uh, for anyone who's going through that that experience, understand that there are others who are probably going through worse experiences. I know for a fact my story is it could be um, a shock to to others but I have spent some time in detention and, and there are guys who were telling me their stories and I was just like and I was gonna kill myself for this you know yeah. it's just in comparison perspective you sort of yeah Arson, you just realize whoa like you know it's not that what bad. you went through was not as bad yeah it was not as that be patient it's it's all going to be over so long as you keep pushing yourself forward Nothing and, and retaining that positive attitude. That's yeah. what I'd say. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Thank Absolutely. you so much for spending some time with me and sharing your incredible story and all the amazing work you're that you're doing. We're so lucky. Australia is so lucky that you're here and you're able to, to help and, and give back so much. So thank you again. You're been amazing and, and I appreciate as well uh, having this opportunity. This was hosted by my mum, Linda Chrisoglu. Stay tuned for next week's episode of People Are Amazing, the podcast.